Welcome to another episode of Random Thoughts with Julito, the podcast. I am, uh, like every episode, extremely excited for this episode. Uh, today, I have a really good friend of mine who just so happens to be the host of BET News, a Temple University alumni and professor, an abolitionist, an author, and just all around a good dude. My friend, Mark Lamont Hill, is in the building. Mark, what's up, man? What's up, bro? Good to see you, man. Good to hear your voice. So good to see you. So good to hear your voice as well. We go way back. And of course, we'll go through that as we go along in the podcast. But listen, you're a Philadelphia representative through and through. And I'm a New Yorker and my Knicks, you know, we got that thing with us in the sixes. Exactly. But you are full-bred Philadelphian. First off, thank you for saying yes to this podcast. What you do for our people, with our people is unprecedented. You are really a voice for us, man. So I just want to say thank you for saying yes to being on this podcast and for always being just such an amazing person, whether I'm working with you or whether it's seeing you on just on the streets in Brooklyn randomly, you always show nothing but love. So I appreciate you, my brother. No, man, I appreciate doing it, man. I, I got so much love and respect for you and the work you do. And you are really, you know, I, I was I was I was saying talking about you earlier and I was saying like it's not there's a lot of actors out there. There's a lot of artists out there. Um but very few are as talented as you, number one. You, you have a, a real talent, man, that I admire. And, and watching you work since you were young has been amazing. But also, very few people are as sincere and as humble with that combination of talent. Usually, mm. the more talented the people are, the more, more, more of an asshole they are. And you've always <laughs> been humble and, 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 and engaged. And, and you care and you love black people, man. And, and I don't take that for granted, especially these days with all the stuff going on in the world. It's a lot of people that make money off black people that will, you know, hang with black people, that will IG about black people, but they don't love black people. And, mm -hmm. and you do. And, and it shows through in everything you do. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Uh, for real. Like, the reason I created this podcast is one, to just get my voice out there, but also to just give flowers to people that I admire. So the first few guests on my podcast, especially are people that I genuinely admire. So that means a lot coming from a person like you. But let's jump into it, man. Like I said, born and raised in Philadelphia. What was life like growing up for you in Philly? And what part do you think your childhood played in, you know, having you live the life you live now? It, it played it played a lot, man. You know, I grew up first in North Philly and then in West Philly. So, um, you know, when you grow up in the hood, you, you're surrounded by all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And a lot of times when people think about my success or they think about what I'm doing, they somehow think that I'm succeeding in spite of the hood. Mm -hmm. um, and I say, no, nah, it's because of it. I learned so many lessons about discipline and about love and about community um, and about our genius where I grew up. Now, I was I was fortunate. I had two parents, you know, yeah. and, you know, we were, you know, my, my parents were the people that stayed in North Philly long after they, they could have left mm -hmm. um, because they loved black people and didn't want to leave. And so, yeah. you know, my parents were the ones that had like full time like jobs. But like so I grew up with people who didn't work or people who, you know, was trying to make ends meet people who hustled people, you know, there's a speakeasy up, up, across the street. You know, <laughs> you know, so forth and so on. People making money all kinds of ways. And, and, mm -hmm. and it was just part of my life. And so I never grew up thinking that there were these kinds of black people and those kinds of black people. They were just us. It was just and, us. You know what I'm saying? And, and that for me um, was was a lot. And it was an example for me. And then the other part of it was my mom was a teacher. And, and so they had hookups. So I, I would take the school bus out of Hunting Park and out of West Philly and go up to the Northeast uh, where the schools weren't like fancy or rich. They just had books in them. There's white people there. So they had books in them, you know, mm. and those were working class white people. So I learned real early that white people were real regular. 
you know, <laughs> like right. they weren't they weren't magical. They weren't they weren't less than us, but they weren't more than us. Mm. And um, and so I learned to appreciate my own ability. But I also realized that the difference between me and my friends at home uh, wasn't that I was smarter. They were writing rhymes and, you know, they were they were working in, in the store without a register, counting change. Mm. They were doing things that re- used the same reading and math skills that I had. Uh, some of them were more clever than me. They were more well-read than me. But there was a gap between how the world saw them and how I saw them. Yeah. And so seeing that gap and seeing the way that school could never see their gifts, school could never appreciate their genius. I was like, wait a minute, I need to figure out how to close that gap. And so from early on, my life's work was figuring out how to create a world that recognizes the gifts that black people bring mm-hmm. um, that allow us to recognize the gifts that we bring mm-hmm. um, and, and, and to close the gap. So we don't have to try so hard to be seen as human. I'm with you for, for sure in that, you know, I grew up in the projects and there are people still to this day in the projects that are way more talented that, than I am. Uh, there's some basketball players that are extremely, you know, gifted when it comes to athleticism. There are just people who in our inner cities that just don't have the opportunities or the chances to be successful. So they are still looked at as such. And it's, it's interesting for a person like you, who you come from where we come from, but you just so happen to be on a, a level of people look at you as intelligent, as intellectual, and they don't realize your story. They don't realize that you left a few universities before you oh, were yeah. able. <laughs> right? What was yeah. that? What was that like? And what did that teach you? I, yeah, yeah, man. The failures are are as important as as the successes. You know, as an actor, man, like people only see the jobs you got. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't see the ones you auditioned for and didn't get. Oh my God, so they don't, you know what I'm saying? They don't know they went to that movie and saw that TV show that you could have been in it if you had gotten it, but you did, right? They don't know all that. They just see what you got, right? You know, and they and they don't understand the pain and the struggle. And so for me, um, I think far, part of it was I was a very smart kid. I learned to read early. I was real. Uh, I, I had my shit together intellectually, but talent isn't everything. And by the time I got to sixth, seventh, eighth grade it became not just about what I was able to do, but what I was willing to do. Mm. And I got caught up in the world that everybody else was, man. I, you know, there was this girl uh, who I just, like, she just blew my mind in sixth grade. Man. I just, I remember, I, Kalia Landers is her name. Oh, yeah. and, you know uh, it's real when you remember that name. The, the, the whole name, though. The whole name. And, um, and, and after I met Kalia, you know, my priority shifted. I'm not blaming her. She was, it wasn't her fault. It was that I remember feeling like this, I started, so there was a gap, like I was, I, a lot of the, the other boys in the class saw me as different because I was the one that like left for the mentally gifted program. I was the one who did all this shit. Then there was this way that masculinity and sometimes unhealthy forms of masculinity mm-hmm. bound us all together. And so suddenly it was like, oh yeah, this nigga's just like everybody else. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we talking, we doing this kind of shit. I'm learning how to fit in. And the way I learned to fit in was by adopting these ideas of what black men and black boys are supposed to be doing. And so school became interruption to my joy instead of the source of it mm. so and then i started playing basketball so by like ninth grade eighth ninth grade all i wanted to do was play basketball so i i, w- I was still reading but i was reading at home i was i wasn't really going to class enough i was going to summer school i was getting d c's d's and f's during basketball season i would get you know b's and c's then those those everything would drop as soon as i didn't need to be eligible anymore and i just kept trying to do that and then by 12th grade i had graduated from high school and I, I had gotten some like division two, division three offers for basketball. My parents was like, nah, if you go to school for basketball, that's all you're going to do. Right. So 
I went to Morehouse instead. And then I went to walk on the team because I was like, well, they didn't say I couldn't play. They just said I couldn't take a scholarship. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's the shit you say when you're 17. So I, I went, I went, and, you know, and so that became my source, right? And so they told me to redshirt the first year. Mm. And I was like, well, if I ain't playing ball, what's the point? Now, if I could do that again, I would have played that whole situation different. I would have redshirted, practiced, got better, had four extra years of eligibility, got busy. And, you know, I wasn't going to be a pro. I wasn't that good, but I, I was good enough to finish my college career. But instead, once I saw that basketball didn't, wasn't the center of my life anymore, then school didn't seem to be needed. So I dropped out. Um, and I stayed in the streets of Atlanta. And I, was doing all, I was getting all kinds of other stuff. Um, but I, uh, while I was getting to that other stuff, I was further and further from school. And I was further and further from family. I was isolated. Um, and I was hustling. And I was just trying to find ways to make money however I could. Not however, I guess it's going to sound crazy to people. Uh, <laughs> but best way you knew how in that moment. The best way, the best way I knew how. Some were legal, some were illegal. Right. Um. But I did everything I could to to to, to survive, and I was homeless at one point in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So, I I was really trying to make it, and then eventually I came back home to Philadelphia, started working, started doing other stuff, got back in school, and then I started to get on track. I was like, right, I got to finish school to get a job. I got to work, and I've had this sense from that moment forward. I've always felt like I've been behind. Even when I caught up, I felt like I was still behind. So I'm always trying to rush to do stuff. And one of the lessons I've had to learn um, is to be patient, to take a breath, that, that everything doesn't have to happen today. And sometimes it's better if it doesn't. A hundred percent. I always feel like we're just on God's speed. And Word. there's times I've rushed my life and, and wanted more for myself, thinking that what I was doing wasn't enough. And I didn't realize that what I've done is touched, moved, and inspired someone. So if that's all I've done in my life, like if the wire is all I've ever done, shit, that's <laughs> right. You know what I'm that's saying? Almost, almost everybody else. Exactly right. So so that's why your your story inspires me so much because there has been failures, but it's gotten you to where you are now. True. In 2012, you released the book, The Classroom and the Cell. Yeah. A conversation on Black life in America, where you got to have an in- in-depth conversation with the political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, which is phenomenal. I meant to tell you that. Because I don't often, we don't talk like career when we see each other, right. it's just life. But right. I did read it, and it's such an amazing um, book. If you haven't right. read it, please go and fi- find it. What was that experience like speaking to Mumia, and, and what did you learn from him in that process? You know, it was it was crazy because, and I just talked to Mumia a couple of days ago. I'm interviewing him for my podcast right now. Wow! And so, we, but we can only do it ten minutes at a time because right. of the prison uh, regulations. Um, Mumia is from Philly. He's from North Philly. I met him in 2000, and, and I say met. We met over the phone. I was still working at Fox News. It was 06, as a matter of fact. And and I got a call. I said from Pennsylvania uh, State Prison. My brother was still locked up, so I thought it was my brother. But when the, when the voice came on. It said Mumia Abu Jamal. I was like, oh shit. I'm like hitting five quick as I can. Like, yo, what's up? And we just he was we just started talking and he was like, Yo, I appreciate your work. I appreciate this article you wrote about uh, the move nine. He said, um, we just gotta stay in touch, man. And we were trying to figure out if Obama was gonna win that election. Mm. And that's all everybody was talking about, yo, you think he could win? If he win, you think he's gonna be all right, you think they're gonna kill him, you think they gonna... that's the kind of shit we was thinking in 06, 07, right? right. Like, 08. So um, we kept building and we started having more personal conversations about not just politics and culture, but about family and love and all this other stuff. And I was like, yo, bro, we should turn this into a book. Like not one of them things where like, let's make it a publishing event. Instead, like let's do what we're already doing and just open, open it up to the world a little bit. Yeah. But again, like, you know, normally if I was doing a book like that, we would sit down, we'd write, we'd talk. 
But I say, you know what, let's, instead of making this into one voice, let's actually make the book about our conversation. Mm-hmm. So Mumia would call me every Friday at five. You only get 15 minutes on a prison phone call. And by the time you get all the interruptions, you get about 10 to 12 minutes. And we would talk about these issues. Then I would mail him because the prisons didn't have computers yet. And they still almost, almost none do. I'd mail him the transcript and then add stuff, add questions. He'd write me back. It might take me four days to get it to him. He'd send it back to me within 12 hours. Like this boy, like his work ethic is crazy. And I know people are like, well, he's locked up. He ain't got nothing else to do. But like Pac said, being in prison doesn't make you more creative. It doesn't make you more energized. Yeah. Like, but he worked despite that. Mind you, he's on death row. Mm-hmm. Then twice a month, once or twice a month, I would then fly to Pittsburgh from Philly because the other side of the state. Um, and then rent a car, drive two hours, go to the prison and sit with him on death row between, you know, it's, it's all glass. You can't meet him. You can't shake his hand, can't nothing. Right. And, and we would talk for an hour or two. And then we'd add that to the book. And, and so I, I learned a few things, man. One, I, it, it put a lot of shit in perspective for me. Like he called me last week and I've been having a rough month. Mm. Just life shit. And, and, yeah, and sorry to hear I, that, brother. It's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's part of being human, but it's, it's crazy because when I call him, and he's like, how you doing, man? I'm like, oh, man, it's a rough. Like, man, you going, man, you've been in prison for 30 years. Man, you've been in prison for 40 years. Like, everything's fine. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm, right. I'm actually just fine. Right. Um, right. And, and I watch how he carries his 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 his, his assignment on this planet. Yeah. And I also watch how when Mumia has written 12 to 14 books now, ours was at his seventh. And none of the books are advocating for his release. He doesn't write books about his own case. He doesn't make himself the center of attention. He's writing about black religion. He's writing about black political prisoners. Other than him, he's writing about the conditions on death row outside of his, his place. And so I'm like, yo, this is what it means to love black people in struggle is to not make yourself the center. And he does that so masterfully, man. And one day we got to, as professors, we have a, um, an expression, publish or perish, mm. um, where, you know, if you don't, if you don't publish, you don't write books, you, you don't keep your job. You're fired. Right. Publish or perish. And I said, yo, man, we got, I got to get another book done because publish or perish. He said, well, I'm on death row. I'm publishing while perishing. Mm. And when he said that, man, it just blew my mind. Like, what does it mean to be haunted by death every single day? The only reason he hasn't been executed is because of the struggle of people on the ground. But on any given day, that can change. Right. Like, he's now no longer on death row. He's in a, he is what he calls slow, uh, slow death row. Instead mm-hmm. of fast death row, he's got a life sentence, mm-hmm. um, which is not the end. We're fighting to get Mumia home. But watching his brilliance, his excellence, his discipline, his commitment, and his deep love for everybody, man, it, it changed me as a person. And he's currently finishing his PhD right now. Uh, wow. And I, I'm like, yo, nigga, if you ain't torture, you, you, you asking for it now, but, but, but he loves it. He loves every bit of it, man. And he's, he's found a way to live life more fully and more courageously than a whole bunch of people I know who aren't in prison. Yeah. That's special, man. I look at people like that who have, he has no reason to want to fight for us. Right. (laughs) He can solely choose to fight for himself every day if he wanted to. And it would be understandable, but he's still choosing to fight for us as a people. And I even look at people like you, Mark, where I say, I feel like what you've done in your life, you can sit back and now just, chill and take care of yourself <laughs> and worry about family but you still choose to be on the front lines of our fight and that for me is is admirable um you know earlier in the year we lost one of the golden ones right in kobe bryant mm. um it's one it's one thing to know his work and watch him play basketball and to 
and to see the mama mentality on screen. But you got to know him personally and you got to spend time with him growing up, especially with y'all playing ball together. What did it mean for you personally to lose Kobe Bryant and what was your relationship like, if you don't mind? You know yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's a tough. I was thinking about him earlier, actually. Um, it's, it's a, and I think about him a lot. Mm-hmm. It, 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 was, um, it was a tough thing. We hadn't talked as much in, in recent years just because we both grown, yeah. in, you know, in life shit. But mm-hmm. um, I, I, met, I met Kobe. I, I'll start there. That way I can feel happy again. I, I met Kobe uh, when we were t- early teens, maybe even 12, maybe 12. We were, we were at basketball camps together. Mm-hmm. And first, I thought he was like a counselor or something. The way he was, because he was he was taller than us, but he was just so much better than everybody else. So like <laughs> ninth grade, you know, I thought he maybe was like a freshman in college or some shit. Like he was just cooking, and and, and I remember watching him play. First first time we went to basketball camp, it was actually me, him, and Kevin Hart were all on the same. Uh, it was at LaSalle basketball camp, and so we were all like, I don't know if we were on the same team, but we definitely were like in the same like bunks. So we, we were either two of us were on the same team, and one was playing against each other. I, at the time, he wasn't Kobe and he wasn't Kevin, so it didn't matter. It wasn't that. Right, right. But, right. but I remember, like, all of us, because um, all of us sort of just being in the same space. Because when I saw Kobe, last time I saw Kobe, we were laughing. Like, yo, he's like, remember little-ass Kevin, man? That nigga turned out to be, like, he got more money yeah. than all of us. He killing everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not to cut you off, but this has my mind blown. Because I've, I've watched Kevin, like, at the celebrity games. I didn't know he really played ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played for George Washington High School. In fact, uh, the, he we we beat them in my senior year uh, by like thirty, and, and and me and Kev both played a decent number of minutes. So so I remember after the game, I, I think I I I think I had like airball a three. I was, I, I shot like an NBA three or some shit in mm-hmm. airball. And my coach pulled me smooth the fuck out. <laughs> Kev, and I and I was like, yo, we whipped your ass. He's yeah, but <laughs> he said, but I airball no three. And then we just start going back and forth. And I was like, you know, but um, hilarious. But we uh we had a. a we, 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 some some ball players. Yeah, Kev was Kev was good. In fact, so 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 around that time after camp, we got cooler. Um, me and Kev lost touch almost completely. Like when we see each other, we speak. We're yeah. cool. Like we would sneak into Temple Gym every in the summertime every day. McGonagall Hall. We would sneak through like the side door to go to, to hoop because back then, like all the college players would come and hoop, and the best high school players would go in there and hoop. They had like invites. We me and Kevin had no invite, so <laughs> we would sneak in the gym, right? Especially going to eleventh eleventh grade, eleventh twelfth grade. But Kobe was in there one day. And Kobe was, I never forget this, Kobe was playing against the Temple uh, men's basketball team, mm-hmm. Division One. This is back when Temple was, was, a, was supposed to be in the Final Four, quite frankly. Wow. Aaron McKee, Eddie Jones, Rick Brunson, all three went pro, right? Wow. All on the same team, right? This, 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 they starting, this, this, now you wonder why they didn't go further, right? When right. Rick Brunson was starting point guard. Aaron McKee was starting shooting guard. Eddie Jones was, was starting uh, small forward. And they were going, they were balling it. And they would do Aaron and Eddie would do these like full court one on one drills and shit. And I I learned like I learned how to how to condition myself and play basketball by watching them. But one day Kobe hits the court, mm. and he should have learned a lesson. Because I, 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 they was like, let the young boy play. It's Philly, you know. So they, they let the young boy play. Mm-hmm. When I tell you, he lit them the fuck up. <laughs> like you couldn't tell who was in college and who wasn't. And the same thing happened at basketball camp. Randy Woods. Uh, who was the best player at LaSalle at the time. He had just gotten drafted. I think he got drafted by the Bucks that year. He came back to, like, talk to us about basketball. And he, you know, the players always come and play somebody one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So we was all hyped because we'd been playing with Kobe for, like, five days by now. He, and they was like, yo, get Kobe, get Kobe, get Kobe. And he knew who Kobe was. He had to because Kobe's dad was assistant coach on LaSalle. Right. So he's like, I'm playing one-on-one. Game go to five. 
I'm gonna just look. I'm gonna just say this. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember if Kobe won, but I, I remember the score being five to four, and I'm pretty sure Co- no, I, they stopped it. That's what happened. They stopped mm. it. They st- it. It wasn't five before. It was four up, and they stopped it. Put it like this: You're an NBA player. You just got drafted in the NBA lottery, and you playing a, a, a tenth grader in basketball. It shouldn't be close. It shouldn't be. <laughs> After Kobe gave him like the third, the, like the third bucket, he started playing hard. He started guarding close. Started hand checking. I'm, it's like this is this ain't looking good. Like even if you win, it's not good because <laughs> it will be five to four. So they they they, they blew. It. Oh, we're out of time, guys. We gotta go. Mm-hmm. And um and they shut, and that's when I knew that Kobe was special. But the other thing about Kobe Bryant, and this is a lesson beyond yeah. basketball, is one like we, we would play. He took every possession. Like it was the last. He didn't start that as in the NBA. Me, him, and his cousin John, who who's a dear friend of mine, we talk all the time. John was ended up playing in Venezuela. He's a big international career played for Venezuela in, in the Olympics. We would play this game called college, or, well, whatever you call it, college. Uh, one up, one down. Uh, basically, you score first person score win, and yeah. the next person come up. Every, every hood got a different names. Mm-hmm. We call it king of the court. King of the court, king of the hill, all that, right? Mm-hmm. So we would play. It was just three of us, right? And 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 sometimes we do 50 of them because you know it's quick first person yeah. 50 wins first person 100 wins whatever mm-hmm. john obviously turned out to be a better basketball player he's a pro but i could beat john if john and i played 50 that i was older than john if i played john 50 times at that point i'd win 30 35 of them mm-hmm. on a bad day i'd win 20 25 of them i've never beaten kobe like i wish at 41 i could just lie to you and be like yo i beat that nigga a couple times <laughs> and the game went to one and one time i was i was cooking and, and he saw me because I kept beating his cousin over and over again. And Kobe, just he just locked up on defense. And I was like, nigga, it's 5 o'clock on a Wednesday mm-hmm. at St. Joe's Gym. Like, yo, like, like you guard me like it's the NBA Finals. But that's how he took every – he didn't want to lose one, but he was not playing. I, I was like, yo, you think by accident I could get a bucket on him? He just never took a possession off. Mm-hmm. And then after we were – mind you, this is after school. This is after basketball practice. This is more workout. And after, so now it's like 8 or 9 o'clock by the time we're done the court. And then he and a trainer, and this is where privilege does come in, but him and a trainer will come and work out, and he would, t- he, he would put up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shots. This is hype. This is 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And he would put up more shots. And I remember one day, I'll never forget this day, he was at the foul line. We, we, we all mess around with shit, right? I'm left-handed, so I would shoot shit with my right hand. Also. But he would do, he started shooting left-hand free throws. And I was like, when will you ever need a left-hand free throw? <laughs> like, like he, I mean, he would shoot left-hand threes, too. He would put up threes left-handed, too, just because. Because he, he was just that gifted. I mean, I, I, I've never – and, I, again, Rushy Wallace was there when I was in high school. He was there. I mean, you know, Tim Tucker. We played against some really good players that, that went pro. I've never seen anybody with his level of skill and sophistication and maturity. But, but, but the, I was like, nigga, you know, that's just dumb shit. I, you're wasting an hour for nothing. Right. He's in the NBA. He goes to the basket, comes down hard, breaks his hand. But he, can't, but he has to shoot the free throws before he leaves the game. And he stood at that line and attempted those free throws left-handed. Left-handed, I remember that. I, I was like, he prepared for a moment that was almost unimaginable. Mm. But he put enough commitment and time into something that – because he could say, I could have saved 50 hours of practice and just missed the free throw. No one would have blamed me for missing a free throw with a broken hand. I, they could have took me out. Someone else could have shot the free throw. Mm-hmm. But his mind worked. He imagined possibilities – that we th- and I think about that not for basketball, for like what would that mean for us to get free? What would that mean for us in our lives, our personal lives, our financial lives, our romantic lives, to imagine possibilities that aren't there and prepare for them so that when they come, we can, we can meet the challenge and excel. 
I was like, yo, he had a, he was ahead of his time. And when he died, again, I saw him at BET at the Genius Talks and a couple years ago. And we talked, we caught up, we laughed, we took pictures and stuff. And and it was like, yo, who would have thought? Like, it was just three, three, three kids, you know, at a basketball camp. I would go this way, Kevin would go this way, you would go this way. Like, who could have, like, you just never, it's like Westinghouse High School, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Daisy there, K, uh, Kim is there, Buster mm-hmm. is there. Like, mm-hmm. Them English teachers ain't know what the fuck they had in that. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, you, but you have to allow for the possibility that black genius is everywhere. Yeah. That is everywhere at all times. Those aren't the exceptions. That's the rule. They just make it despite the barriers we put up. Mm. So, so we're talking, and he was just, I, he just looked so happy. I was like, yo, you know, he, he was fine. You know, I was like, yo, I, do you wish you had a son? Because, you know, you know, you know, it was like, yo, having daughters, like, we didn't get, you didn't get to be the, the, the basketball dad of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Like, I don't give a fuck about that, man. Like, I'm so happy to, be, to have daughters. I'm so happy with basketball. I'm so happy with what they're doing. Bah, 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 bah. He, he looked relaxed. I'd never seen him so at peace. He, he wasn't trying to prove anything. I could yeah. tell he's going to retire because he, he just felt good. Um, and we kept saying, we're going to get up, we're going to get up, we're going to get up. We, um, he came to Philly. Um, I'm sorry, he didn't come to Philly. His, I saw his cousin in Philly this past year when LeBron passed him on a scoring record. The mm-hmm. Lakers were playing the Sixers. And I was like, yo, I'm going to call, I'm going to hit Kobe up later and tease him about LeBron passing. Right? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was supposed to go out to the Mamba Academy to check out what they were doing mm-hmm. within a month or two. Um, this pre-COVID, all that shit. Yeah. And then the next day, I saw somebody say Kobe died. And I laughed kind of because I was like, oh, I thought somebody was making a bad joke about him like wanting to kill himself because of LeBron passing him on the scoring mm-hmm. list. It didn't come. It was like, he, he can't be dead. Yeah. He, 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 he can't be dead. Yeah. We're the same. Kobe's, I think August 23rd, I'm December 7th. Like, we're a few months apart. We're the same age. I'm young. He's young. He, he's, at the, he, he's at his most at peace. He's at his happiest. He got the rest of his life. He's building. He can't be dead. He can't be. We were just at LaSalle. We, 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 were, we were just kids. You know? We, we, yeah. were, we were just kids. You know? Like, yeah. I got kids the age, you know, my, my, my like, like, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Like, that's how old we were when, when, when we met. met. Like, time moved like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, he can't be gone. Because what is it? It, it wasn't real to me. It was like, he can't be gone. And what, would, what does it mean for him to be gone? Mm. Like, this life shit, bro, is... is um, and forgive me, I'm, I, I, hadn't, um, no. I haven't processed this all the way. But this, this life shit is crazy because you don't know what's next. You don't know when it's going to happen. That's why you just got to live your life as fully and as lovingly and as passionately as you can at all moments because you don't know when it's going to go. Kobe did not wake up that morning thinking that it was going. So I just, I just, I just hoped that it wasn't true. I called John's cousin and his phone wasn't answering. John always answers. I texted him. I didn't get no response. I never got a response. It wasn't until I saw him the next time that, mm-hmm. that you know what I mean? Uh, he, he, you know what I mean? Um, somebody else hit Kobe's phone up. It was going to making a weird sound. You know, I call his family. His family was like, yo, it's true. You know what I'm saying? And, and I remember just being devastated. And I haven't even processed it all the way. Um, you know, growing up, people got killed. You know, like I, friend, I've lost friends. I've lost friends. I've had friends get killed in front of me. You know, yeah. growing up in the hood, like you're used to premature death. Yeah. But then, bro, you hit an age like 35, 40 where that's over. Right. All your friends is going to get killed probably have been. Mm. All your friends is going is going to get locked up 
in a certain kind of way are either locked up or they're, ho- they're coming home now. Mm-hmm. At 40, you don't expect to lose your friends suddenly. Now you're worried about people having diabetes and heart disease. You, I'm worried about like old man shit. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Not premature death. And, and, and when he died, man, and, and watching the world mourn it, there's a mm-hmm. way that that made it easier because everybody was mourning it. And there's a way that yeah. made it harder because you can't process it in the same way because you're no different than anybody else. You know what I mean? Like, cause, yeah. you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm hosting the funeral for BET, mm-hmm. you know, and which I was happy to do. I was honored to do it. Um, but so there just wasn't a moment. I, I, honestly, I don't think I've talked about it until you just asked me about it since then. Um, and I'm glad you did because I need to I need to process that and other things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, it it it, it was tough. Uh, it, it was tough. He was he was one on one, man. He's a special dude, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I got to watch him um, become more. I watched him grow and develop, and and that's the thing. So many of us don't get the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if if Jay Z dies, you know, at the age Pac was, you know. Um, you know, 25, mm-hmm. you know, no one would have been like, oh, he was destined to be a billionaire and, and do this and do, you know, like no one saw that at 25. For sure. You know what I mean? There was no way to, all right. Um, watching people grow. And so we got to see Kobe go to 40, but Kobe at 60 might've been, a, he could have been president. He was a new, he was a new, he was a new him. Yes. Which was That's so beautiful to experience. Yeah. Yeah, man. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I mean, no, please don't apologize, Mark. I, I actually thank you for your vulnerability, bro. Um, I was I actually, I sat and I, I questioned, should I ask you about Kobe? Because I'm not here for clickbait. I'm not here. I'm actually, I think I look at this as two friends talking and word, we're just word, word. so happen to share, the, share it with the world. So I was questioning, but, you know, thank you for your vulnerability and thank you for having this moment with me because I know what I felt in, in losing Kobe. And I, it's weird. I grew up a New York Knicks fan, which means we didn't like Kobe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we didn't right. like anything to do with, we didn't want anything to do with the Lakers, but I respected him as a man. Yes. I respected the mama mentality. I respected how great of a dad he was. I, I would watch Kobe with Gigi and with his other children and just look and say, you know, you got to have a daughter to experience that level of joy, <laughs> right? Exactly. When, you, when you're looking at him, you know, practicing with his daughter and her, seeing how she was about to be a beast. Oh, yeah. Right? She was a problem. She was a problem. Uh, just watching his second life, right? I look at it as like winning the Oscar and, and, and going across the world and, and, and speaking his life into others it, it really warmed my heart so to lose him as a fan of him was tough so i really thank you for sharing that with us man because that's yeah. it's, it's special and i and thank you for like reliving it because um you know i lost a lot of people in my life as well um and i also haven't processed and grieved as as much as i probably even needed to so um so thank you for that for real mark for sure. real. Um, and, and in talking about, like, this is quote that I read, and I can't, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't get it fully. But it's basically, if you want to live forever, teach children, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I think you've been doing in your life. If you've been standing up for our youth and standing up for, for our young people, you've, you're a founding board member of My Fifth, 
a nonprofit organization where you aim to educate the youth about our legal rights and responsibilities. Unfortunately, there are just too many young people who don't know their rights. And outside of the need to want to educate, it seems like you you want to save children. For sure. For sure. You know, what's the nonprofit done for you? What do you what do you guys aim to do? And 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 what does it mean to you to have my fifth? You know, that, that organization, and I, I, I'm not really particularly active with it now just because okay. I'm doing some other stuff, but, but we started it because B.J. Bernstein started it, uh, uh, the lawyer for Janarlo Wilson. Mm-hmm. Janarlo Wilson was a, a high school student who, was, who had consensual oral sex with a classmate. This wasn't a debate about whether it was consensual or not. The girl says it was consensual. He says it was consensual. That wasn't what was in dispute. The problem was that the girl was 15 years old, mm-hmm. and he was 17 years old. They were, they were high school classmates, it, again. But technically, in Georgia, you have to be 16 mm-hmm. to have oral sex. So he was arrested, charged, and convicted, aggravated child molestation, sentenced oh. to 10 years of federal time, after which he would have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. The girl's family said this was wrong. The girl said this was wrong. Obviously, he thought it was wrong. We thought it was wrong. And the law wasn't designed for... for um, for people 17 and 15 or 16 and 14. It was designed to stop adults from doing harm to children. And, we, and I fully understand that. But he was the exception. And you would think, well, this is an easy rule to not follow. The judge decided he wanted to follow. The jury decided to impose it. And when we tried to fight it in other levels, um, a lot of politicians behind closed doors said, you know, we, you're right. But if we do the right thing here, when we run for re-election, somebody's going to say that we were soft on child molestation or we weakened the law. And so the, so, be, so the political games became more important than justice. Right. And so it took us years to get Gennaro out. Gennaro eventually came out. Uh, his record was expunged. He was, his, his thing was set aside. He graduated from Morehouse College. He has a family. He's doing very well right now. In fact, I'm going to call him today, too, since he's on my brain. Um, but I say all that to say... That doesn't mean Gennaro was perfect that night. Gennaro didn't deserve to be in the system, but he also could have made some better choices that night. For example, underage drinking. Yeah. So part of what our job is to do is to say, look, the system is broken. There is a conspiracy to lock all of us up. 100%. At the same time, we can make choice. If we don't make the right choices, then we are part of the conspiracy. Mm. We're supporting the conspiracy. So for me, in all the activist work that I do, starting with my fifth, was to say, look, you have rights. When you plead the fifth, right? And I, I'm not talking about in court. I'm talking about at, at the level of even like, you don't have to answer their question. Yeah. Ask for a lawyer. Because usually when you start talking and explaining your way out of shit, that's when you end up- You with, build their case for it against you. You build their case every time. That's what they, that's what they want. They want you to talk. <laughs> um, get a lawyer. Know your rights. When you get pulled over, here's what you can say. Here's what you don't say. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. There's a right and there's responsibility. I want you to have all your rights protected, but I also want you- to know what your responsibility is in the situation. I also want you to make healthy choices. And so that was the work. And so I've been going around the country for years talking to young people um, about what they can do to navigate the system successfully. But I never want to send the message that the fact that they have to navigate it in a particular way um, is their fault. Yeah. This system is designed to capture the vulnerable, to do harm to the vulnerable. And my primary job in this world is to dismantle this system. That's why I always say the system's not broken. Mm. It was designed this it way. It was designed this way. Right. Our job is not 
to um, to 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 fix a broken system. Our our, our job is to, is to is to take a system that is designed the way it is and break it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always want to figure out how, and that's what being an abolitionist is about. That's what being, uh, I'm not a reformist. Um, I'm an abolitionist. I want to imagine a, a world without prison, a world without police, and I want to fight for it. And I may never live to see it in the same way that slavery abolitionists in the 1700s didn't get to see 1863 or 1865, but they still knew it was worth fighting for. And so that's the work that I do. And so for me, that means, yeah, engaging young people, talking to young people, inspiring young people, getting them to dream uh, more ambitious dreams of freedom than I could ever dream for myself. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Kobe dreamed of that left-handed free throw that he might need one day. I want people to dream of a world without prisons um, and how we can get there and how we can create a society that cares for each other, even if we don't know each other. Me and you go out and we, I, but we bumped each other on the street on we some have. Brooklyn nights. And <laughs> we have. If I was driving, you would have took the keys from me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 100%. I'm supposed to be on myself. If I was, them nights, you would have needed to take the key from me if I had been driving. I was walking, so I was good. We was good. <laughs> we good, right? But, but imagine if instead of taking my keys or calling me an Uber or making sure I got home, you would let me get in my car and then call the police and say, yo, we have a drunk driver on the road, mm. right? You would never do that, right? Never. First, hood code against snitching, but two, like, that's not how you engage people you care about. Yeah. You make sure they're well taken care of. The problem is we only do that with people we know. Mm. The rest of society, we're taught to use the police to manage harm, to manage crisis, to manage trauma, to manage mistakes, to manage sickness. And so if I'm drunk in my car, like Richard Brooks was in, um, in, in Atlanta, yeah. I'm asleep. That's what you're supposed to do if you're drunk. I shouldn't be driving. I should be asleep. But the only way they, the only person they could call to get him out of the drive-thru was the police. Not because they wanted to get him locked up, but because they had nobody else to call. So part of the abolitionist vision is to create, and that's what people talk about when we talk about defunding, is to say, let's take some of that money from the police that showed up and killed him mm-hmm. and give them to a public safety force that could have gotten that man home safely. Yeah. Because the police are trained to escalate. Let's bring in some people who are trained to de-escalate. De-escalate it. Yeah. yeah. And again, he made some bad choices. Now, he stole a stun gun and ran. I, I get it. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, is that that was, they spent an hour and a half interrogating that man. It would have taken him 20, I, I've lived in Atlanta before. It would have taken him 20 minutes. That time of night, 20, 30 minutes, take him anywhere in the Atlanta metro area. It would have been faster to take him home than it was to do all that. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not what we're trained to do. And so part of my work with young people is to get them to make the choice. Don't get drunk and drive. Don't mm-hmm. fall asleep in the Wendy's parking lot. Get somebody to get keys. Use Uber, goddammit. Like, all that. Right. But I have to fight for a world where our solution to problems isn't police. If everything, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything is going to look like a nail, right? Mm-hmm. We need new tools so that we don't have to use a hammer for stuff that don't require one. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I look at it also like... I think we need to stop blaming people for making mistakes that that the police see as a death threat, right? Yes. Like, why are we blaming? Yeah, he, let's say Rayshard Brooks, he should have not gotten drunk and, and he should have just took an Uber, right? Or whatever the case may be. Right. But at the same time, that did it. That wasn't the cause for a death sentence. Nope. And I think too often what I'm seeing black folks do is we are blaming the folks for not doing enough to end this a system that was never for us. That's exactly right. Right. So, so the work you do is, is important. And, you know, I was talking about a Rayshard books um, this year in particular, we experienced a Breonna Taylor. And unfortunately it is not, 
it's not, this is not like a brand new thing. This is not a, a new occurrence for the last hundreds of years. And more in particular, in these last 10 years, we've experienced the Oscar grants, the Trayvon Martins, the Tamir Rice, and this year, the Breonna Taylor. What, what, what occurred for you in, throughout this movement and it all happening in the middle of a quarantine? Ooh, it, it made me both deeply sad and incredibly optimistic at the same time. Mm. Um, I just finished a book. It, it, it's out November 10th. Yeah, we uh, definitely want to talk still about here. that. Okay, yeah. And, and, and part of why I wrote the book was because I was, I was wrestling with this. You know, I was like, again, I've been an activist. I've been doing this a long time. So, you know, when I remember Rodney King was killed, mm. uh, beaten, excuse me, Rodney King was not killed. He died later. When Rodney King was beaten, I remember that sense of outrage people had. And I remember we were like, well, look, it's on tape. We've been saying LAPD's whooping our ass for years, but now it's on tape. They, mm -hmm. It's on tape. <laughs> and it, yeah. it didn't matter. Did it. Still, they, they were still acquitted um, on, on, on all the important charges that first time around. And there was a way that that can deflate you. When we fought to see uh, uh, Tupi Williams, uh, his, 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 we, we tried to stop his execution. Troy Davis was trying to stop his execution and we were unsuccessful and they were killed and we cried and we were sad. And there's a way that over and over again, we get deflated. Trayvon Martin, George, you know, George Zimmerman, not, not, not convicted. Um, um, Michael Brown, uh, uh, Darren Wilson, not even indicted. Right. Mm -hmm. Daniel Pantaleo kills Eric Garner, not even. And we going down the list. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a way that we get deflated and we get deflated and we feel defeated because we feel like there's no justice. We, we feel like the message is being sent that our lives simply are not worth protecting or fighting for. Um, and so that's in the back of my mind, right? There's a way that black people always feel a sense of unsafety and unprotectedness from the state. Then COVID comes and that sense of unsafety and unprotectedness is exacerbated because now we're not only getting killed by police, but we're on the front lines of a pandemic that doesn't, that's colorblind in, at the epidemiological level. That is to say, the disease ain't, it ain't sickle cell, right? It ain't looking for niggas. Right. However, or, or Europeans, some, some people near rivers in Europe that get sickle cell too, ain't just black folk, we <laughs> get it too. But, um, but it's like, but there's a way that we're disproportionately impacted by it. Yeah. The media want us to think COVID was colorblind, but COVID wasn't colorblind because social distance is how you protect yourself from it. But right. the problem is, who in the project can have social distance? Nobody. Right. You know, me and you having a Zoom meeting, but if I work at, at Walmart or Amazon, I can't I can't do that from Zoom. I got to go in. I got to be the front line worker. So I'm, I'm standing at a register while hundreds of people are breathing in my area and they come in to get their stuff so they can go back home and protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that the vulnerable are, are, are carrying the water for the rich when it comes to this, this disease and black folk are disproportionately vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So all this is that. So we're feeling unsafe. We're dying from COVID, and then George Floyd gets killed. Then we see the footage of Ahmaud Arbery getting killed. Then we find out through social media that Breonna Taylor has been killed. Then we watch Christian Cooper get harassed in Central Park by Amy Cooper. And these things always outrage us, but now we're home, we're stuck, and we're watching it. And I remember walking out, to answer your question about Breonna, I remember walking out to a rally uh, in Philly in June, I think it was May or June, and they were asking, and I was like, well, I, I was like, I can't go. I was like, my dad's 92, he's sick, I wanna see him eventually. Cause I hadn't seen my dad since February at that point. 
And I didn't get to see him until about a week ago, two, two, two three weeks ago. Wow. Um, because he was, in, he was in the hospital and in a nursing home and we, I couldn't see him. I, I thought I'd see him for the last time, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So this is, and I'm like, but if, I, if there's a sliver chance I can see him, I don't want to be at a rally because it's, it's too vulnerable for COVID. So it's, do I stay at home and not protest the state killing us? Or do I go outside and risk getting killed by the disease that the state's not protecting us from? This is what it means to be black. In which way will I risk death today? That's, that's, that's the question. So, man, I was like, I don't know what to do. That's, that's the depressing part. But the hopeful part is this. I, I didn't go out there, but the 17 and the 18 and the 25-year-olds were out there. They were protesting George Floyd, but they were saying Breonna Taylor's name. There was a time coming up where only straight black men would have their names as, as art muttered in a, in a protest. Even growing up in New York, you know, Sean Bell, Amadou Diallo, mm-hmm. Abner Louima. There were only certain names we would say. Black girls didn't get that protection. We wouldn't say Sandra Bland the way we'd say Mike Brown. We wouldn't say Renisha McBride the way we'd say Eric Garner, mm-hmm. right? Um, and trans women had no shot. We wouldn't say Mia Hall the way we might, you, you know what I'm saying, say Jordan Davis and so, or Freddie Gray. And so there's a way that at this moment, we got black folk in the streets. We got young folk in the streets. We're saying black girls' names. We're saying trans women's names. We're, we're not calling to reform the police or get black police or have the police, you know, do new dances and shoot hoops with us in the street. Mm-hmm. We're calling for defunding these motherfuckers. Defund the police. Yes. So I'm, I'm like, y'all got y'all more radical? It must be like somebody in the NBA in the 80s watching these kids now. Like, oh, every, it's just oh, a bunch of niggas seven foot, seven feet tall, crossing <laughs> niggas and dunking and shooting threes. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. That's how I felt. I was like, yo, y'all got the right politics, the right ethic. Long way to go. Yeah. Long way to go. We all got a long way to go. But I felt optimistic that in the midst of all this misery, there was a radical movement being renewed and regenerated all once again. And that shit that honestly has me excited to this moment. And so I'm, I'm frustrated with a whole bunch of stuff going on in the world. I, 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 I hate the fact that Donald Trump is president. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm excited of all the energy on the ground. And I think we're going to see some real change real soon. I agree with you, and I'm super excited to read. We we still hear pandemic policing, protest, and possibility dropping November 10th. Um, I'm excited that this movement drew you to creating some more life work um, yeah. and more content because we need it. And um, I'm 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 also hopeful. Right, there are moments where I'm up and down about protesting, and is it actually creating change? Like I had a moment the other a few weeks ago where I'm like. You know, we've marched for so long and it seems like no one, no one is hearing us. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm at a point where it's like I, I can't I can't go out and protest because I'm taking care of myself. It's like self-care for me in this moment because I'm sure. so angry that I don't know if I'll be protesting um, in a way that's beneficial. But I'm also grateful that we got young people out there that are standing on the front line that are standing up for what we what we believe in and it's it's actually um it 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 creates hope in me it creates it shows me that maybe one day things will look different for us i I think you're right i think you're right and and i think the thing i always tell people is protesting is not the answer Mm -hmm. it's a tool just like voting is a tool we're not gonna vote our way to freedom we're not gonna march our way to freedom but they're tools that we use at different moments as part of a bigger strategy yeah. You know, if, 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 if marching is your philosophy, you're going to lose. If voting is your philosophy, you're going to lose. If nonviolence is your philosophy, you're going to lose. But if there are tactics that you have um, as part of a bigger strategy and a bigger philosophy, then, yeah, you win. 
And, mm-hmm. and I think that's how I look at it. I, I tell people to, to get free, we got to fight 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. And when people say, yeah, voting's not going to help, I say, you're right. It's not going to it's not going to help us get free if all we do is vote. Mm-hmm. But it will help us get free if we say, look, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, we're struggling, we're fighting, we're resisting. And 15 minutes out of that 365 days, we're going to go down to the library or the firehouse, we're going to pull that lever and vote to keep fascism at arm's length, to keep violence at arm's length, right? To keep evil at arm's length. Doesn't mean that the, the alternative is good. It just means, as James Baldwin said, sometimes we vote as a means of buying time, mm. right? That, that maybe this option will allow a few more people to live than those, those people. Yeah. And then we go back to doing other 365, 24-7 stuff. And that's how I think about it. And it's the same thing with marching. King didn't march to get free. King used marches as a dramatized spectacle. And the, it's, it's, it's like if you grew up in a, in, a, in a house of mice or roaches, like I did, you know, did mice, well. you understand mice, roaches, they do whatever they want when the lights are off. Mm-hmm. They sit on your couch, they eat your food, they'll DVR some shit. They'll do whatever they need to do <laughs> when the lights aren't on. But when you turn to flip the lights on, that's when they react differently, mm-hmm. right? We, the, we, the march is the light. Mm-hmm. The protest is the light that puts a spotlight to stop the, the police go, oh shit, people are looking. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we make a move. So, so the, the officers who killed George Floyd got fired because we, the light was on, mm-hmm. because we were watching. The others got indicted a couple weeks later because we kept marching and kept the pressure on. Without our pressure, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so that, that doesn't, that, justice isn't police going to jail for killing us. Justice is police not killing us. Right? That, that's justice, right? I, that justice. I wouldn't feel like the world is great. Every time a nigga gets killed, they go to, somebody goes to jail for it. Well, no, because that could just mean every day somebody's going to jail for killing us. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but, what, but what the marches do is they, they make the stakes higher. There was a time where killing a black person didn't cost you anything. It didn't even cost you time off from work. Mm. Now, at least you're going to get fired and you may get prosecuted. That is a step. It's not the goal, but it's yeah. a step. And so for me, again, when people who don't want to protest or don't want to vote, I'm not out here demonizing them because, again, that's just one tactic. Right. There are people who do way more important work educating people on the street, making great art, uh, uh, you know, writing books, um, um, building institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, doing cop watch program. I mean, there's a million ways to, to resist. And I think we have to stop acting like one way, like, because I think you're right. If we act like protesting or voting or whatever is the, is the only way to get free, mm-hmm. and it's all we, not only the only way, but, but, but like the best way, like, like, like all you got to do is this and anybody who does anything different is wrong, then we're never going to get free. So I, I, I think that, and I, I feel disillusioned too sometimes. I'm like, yo, they, they just don't care. Yeah. They don't yeah. care. They, they don't care. They only pay attention when we tear shit up. They only pay attention when we make a lot of noise. Listen, I, I'm not, not to cut you off, but I'm just okay. not against, you know, looting. I'm not against those things um, because I look at it as, you know, these kids are, are fighting back. And we, who are we to tell these young kids how to be angry? That's right. right? Who are we to say this is wrong when... Yeah, you, you'll rebuild a target. You'll rebuild these shops. And of course, stay away from our mom and pop shops because those are the shops and the people that actually are, you know, on the front lines with us at times. But like, we can't tell people, especially young people, how to be angry. It doesn't That's work. That's it. And if you want them, if you, the only way we could tell them, we, we can't tell them not how to be angry. And unless we will not offer them an alternative that works better, then... Then, then, then we can't be out here policing or, or judging their action. I, I think we can, we can help them harness it and use yeah. it in effective ways. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can give them wise counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can always do things better. Anyone can do something better. 100%. But this idea that somehow they're wrong for wanting to break a window or tear down a sign when their friends are getting killed in the street uh, with impunity, mm. um, I think is wrong. I think I, we put way too much energy in shaming the people catching hell instead of challenging the people who are given the hell. A hundred percent. I think I think you got it, bro. A hundred percent. Yo, this isn't a political podcast, but I'm also not looking to be tone deaf. Um, in a few days, we have an election coming, <laughs> and yeah. some may say this is probably one of the biggest elections of all time. For you, what does this election mean? This is a high-stakes election. Again, you know, every election, there are differences in candidates. I, I, I never believe that there's no difference between candidates. But there has n- but I, I, I believe that Donald Trump is the most dangerous uh, president we've had in modern history. Mm. And I believe that another four years of Donald Trump will lead to the unnecessary and entirely avoidable death of hundreds of thousands of people, minimum. Mm. And I can't think of any better reason to vote for the first time um, or to vote Democrat for the first time than to stop Donald Trump from putting gasoline on, on a fire that he didn't create, but yeah. that he made much worse. And I got to be clear, and just to give you a little bit of context, I am a member of the Green Party. Right. I have been a member of the Green Party for, for two decades. Um, I have never voted for a Democrat in the general election before as a, for president. This will be my first time doing so. So I'm not the guy that comes along every four years like, yo, you got to pick one. I, I, I think there's a lot of arguments for why we should vote third party, why we should support other people. I understand why people stay home and don't vote. I understand all of it, and I don't judge it. I don't shame it. I think this is an unusual circumstance. I think this is an exceptional circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that um, we have to put all of our energy into making sure that Donald Trump is not president and then use that same energy, and here's where we fall short usually, to, to holding Joe Biden accountable if he becomes president. Yeah. The struggle is not over if Joe Biden is president. The struggle begins. Mm-hmm. Joe, Joe, Joe Biden just gives us a chance to resist because mm-hmm. Donald Trump doesn't want to hear resistance. He doesn't want to hear uh, dissent. So Joe Biden, Joe Biden can be moved. I think Joe Biden's wrong on a lot of issues. I'm not a Joe Biden supporter by any stretch, but I know he's a politician who can be moved. Mm. I don't care why he changes his position. As long as he changes it to the right position, I can live with that. Right. I can't live with Donald Trump for four more years. I mean, personally, I can. Quite frankly, my taxes are better than ever. You know what I mean? I make yeah. more money under Donald Trump than I do anybody else, right? You know, my, my bookstore, my life, uh, my personal taxes, my production company. I mean, quite frankly, the more money you make, the better you do under Donald Trump. But I didn't choose this life to make sure that I was okay. I, I chose this life to make sure that the most vulnerable among us, as the Bible says, the least of these are okay. And for me, um, making sure that that happens can only happen if Donald Trump is not at the helm anymore. So it's a big election, but I tell everybody, even if you're not interested in who's president, your city, your state, your neighborhood, it all matters. If you want that pothole filled, that ain't going to be Trump or Biden, right? That might be your councilman. That might be your alderman. That might be, you know, your rep. You need to vote for that. You know, mm-hmm. if you want the library open at night and not closed for your kids, that comes down to who you vote for at the city level. You know, a lot of the 
last year there's so many people or in the last four years so many people, people were outraged about trans bathrooms and gender neutral bathrooms a lot of that stuff happens at the state level but right. people don't often vote at state level elections right so mm-hmm. everybody will come out and vote this year treat it like it's a super bowl and the, the next three years nobody will do anything mm-hmm. we have to vote every opportunity multiple times a year to make sure that our energy our vote our power is heard republicans are outnumbered in this country mm-hmm. they don't win by the margin of demographics. They win by the margin of people on the other side who don't vote. So that's why they suppress your vote. That's why they hide your vote. That's why they try to ask you for IDs you shouldn't need. That's why they make the line eight hours, 10 hours in Atlanta to vote because they know that if everybody votes, they lose. So what they try to do is make sure that everybody can't vote. Mm -hmm. And that should make you want to vote even more than ever. 100%. You know, Mark, we couldn't get out of here without talking about, you know, Uncle Bobby's. In, in ah, 2017, man. you opened up Uncle Bobby's, the coffee and bookshop in your hometown, Philadelphia, Germantown. Uh, it's not just a bookshop uh, that serves coffee. It's also a space that provides fee, free author talks, weekly story time for the children in the neighborhood, also back to school drives. Yeah. Um what you're doing is amazing there in Philadelphia. In these three years that you've had this shop open, what's the most fulfilling part about it? When a kid comes in, um, sometimes four years old, sometimes six years old, sometimes 15 years old, and says, I want to start reading. Can you recommend a book to me? Mm. I know what the, what the journey of books did for me. It, it gave me a life worth living. It, it fulfilled me. It, it set me on this course. Going to my Uncle Bobby's house uh, when I was a kid, my dad's brother, you know, the books he gave me, the conversations we had, going to black bookstores in Philly and Atlanta once I went to college, like, I know what they did for my life. And having the opportunity to do that in loving service to my community is beautiful. I mean, we've had, we've hosted New York Times bestseller authors, we've had major symposiums, we've had all kinds of celebrities come through. You know, all that is dope. I love it. I'm excited by it. But the best thing is when I'm sitting in that shop and somebody walks up to me and say, yo, I want to learn about black people. What can I read? And you hand them that first book and you know they hook. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that, that's a gift to me. Yeah. You know, the fact that I can do something for them is dope, but that's a gift to me. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's the most rewarding thing that I, could ever, that I could ever do, man. Watching those kids go to the children's section and pick up a book when they can see their face on the cover. They can mm-hmm. see their hair in the book. They can see their neighborhood on the page. Mm-hmm. And they know that they matter. Mm-hmm. And ain't, ain't, ain't no amount of money in the world worth that. 100%. Um, I got to stop by and I will stop by soon. Yes, sir. Um, before we get out of here, every week I allow the supporters, uh, I call them the randoms, the folks that tweet about the, sh- uh, the show, the folks that, you know, are part of the Patreon. I allow them to ask myself and my guests a question. Um, and this week is from my brother, Fame the God on Instagram, my blood brother. He asked us... Um, we met from you producing for Color Boys. Yes, with yes, yes. State with Stacy Muhammad. Shout out the uh, amazingly talented Stacy Muhammad. Uh, Stacy, yes. What can we look forward to seeing from you on the t- uh, film and television end with your oh, production company? Question. 
Yeah, man. So me and Stacy, after after working with Stacy on, I came in a little bit later on the project with, with, for Color Boys, mm-hmm. and again, like you killed it. So I mean, Robbie killed it, and obviously he's going on some, some big oh things last years. Every time I go to the movie theater, I see Rob. Every time I go to the <laughs> and TV, I see Rob Morgan. Shout out Rob Morgan. Yeah, shout out to Rob. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. Like it's so wonderful to watch, man. Yeah. And um, so Stacy and I have a few projects we're working on right now. Uh, we we had a project called The Creed, uh, which is about a mother who respond uh, responds. Uh, who's dealing with the aftermath of a son being killed by a cop and plots revenge. Uh, I'm working on a documentary called Black in the Holy Land that I'm directing, uh, which is about black folk in Israel, Palestine. So you look at everything from the Israelites to black Palestinians to Ethiopians. It's a, it's, 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 it's a powerful way to think about how race means something so different on the other side of the world. Um, Stacy is finishing a feature length uh, film uh, I've read the revisions on the script this week and it's, it, it's amazing. And I think you'll see that on a major platform within the next uh, 12, 12 months. Uh, and then after that, uh, we got, I, there's a romantic comedy that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing up as well. Um, Stacy and I work together. Uh, 1930 Productions is, is the move. Uh, we got some, we got some digital web stuff. We're shooting uh, this new uh, digital platform that we, I can't say the name yet, but it's a social media platform and we're producing a, uh, a music series with live, uh, music uh, uh, interviews and performances by up and coming artists um, that you'll see. That should be out in the next month. In fact, or in two months, we're shooting it uh, in two weeks. Um, so, you know, on on the production front, it's been great, man. You know, I went from somebody who like watching TV and somebody who wanted to host it to somebody who now wants to produce it. Mm. And I'm learning the joy in creating stuff, man. I, I, I never considered myself a creative the way y'all are. Um, but in the last couple of years, I've moved more and more in that area, man. And it's, it's so fulfilling, man. Writing a book is dope, but shooting something and letting the world see it, the, the way people respond to that is something else, man. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a blessing. There you go, Mark. I, I'm excited to experience everything you do on the film and the television and, and as well as all the work you continue to do as a philanthropist. Dude, I thank you so much, man. You are a gem to us, man. And I want people to know how great of a person you are. Um, oh, I can see you in the middle of a club randomly. You'll always make sure to come in, get, even give me just a few seconds of your time every time you uh, or on the street in Brooklyn when we're both leaving a, you know, a, a, a night out or just in you know, moments like this where you get to give us gems, man. You're a blessing. And I, and I pray that everything you need and what you have, my brother. Um, tell the people where to find you before we get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can find me. Uh, if you want to get any of my books, any of my material, you can just go to marklamonthill.com. And I'm on social media uh, at Mark Lamont Hill, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that. Oh, just Mark Lamont Hill. I look forward to rapping with folk. And, and just, I mean, you got to rap again and we got oh, to find a way to work together again soon. Of course. Very soon. I, 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 from our mouth to God's ears, man. It's to follow the show, please, you know, feel free to jump into our Patreon at patreon.com slash random thoughts with Julito. Follow us on Instagram at random thoughts of the podcast. And if you want your question or thought to be the random thought of the week, email me at random thoughts with Julito at gmail.com. Again, Mark, you're a blessing, man. I appreciate you, my brother. I thank you so much. Until we speak again, my brother. Peace. That's some random thoughts for your head.